I'm Brian Fierst. And I'm Rebecca Cahoe. And you are listening to Rural Roots. Today, we are going to talk about technology that makes this podcast possible. And it also helps with a lot of other more important things. Remember this? Oh, no. Yeah. Yeah, it's bad. (laughs) Stop it. So, for those of you born post-1990 or so, that is the sound of dial-up. Yep, and I hope I never have to hear that sound again. And luckily for you, um, you probably won't ever have to, uh, except if you live in a rural or remote community, it's, it's possible that the broadband access may not be there. And that's what we're going to talk about today. So when we were in BC uh, a month and a half ago, ago or so, um, at the uh, at the surf conference, we noticed that high speed internet or the lack of high speed internet was one of the issues that just seemed to underlie so many of the conversations that we were hap- having. Whether it was about economic development, whether we were talking about the delivery of health services, education, safety, and communities, all of these issues were so closely tied to the idea of um, of access to to the internet. Yeah, and for this story, we talked to a lot of people, actually, but the first clip, the first story I would like to play is um, a personal story from Dr. Christopher uh, Horstief. Uh He shared with us just before he did his keynote um, at, at the Nelson Conference in BC. He is a Kutunaha person from Kiskanuk First Nation, and we are going to hear a lot more from him um, about many interesting things that he's up to in some future episodes. Uh, but the story that he told us uh, then was about his father's experiences during the forest fires that were taking place in BC this year. Um, there was an awful summer for fires, and a lot of people found themselves, um, you know, incommunicado with with the people they love, and also with important services that um, that you really want to have there for you when something like this is happening. So it really underlines how important broadband access can be to rural and remote communities. So I'm going to let um, Dr. Horse Thief share his, his story now. You know, I hadn't heard from my father while all of these evacuations were going on. And uh, he finally, somebody got the message to him and he went to the, the closest place he could get for a Wi-Fi signal. And he got a hold of me and said, hey, I'm not, you know, dodging your call, but the end of the reserve, essentially the, the forest fire took out the, the, the phone lines and therefore that's how they get their internet as well. So they did, it wasn't possible for him to log on and check in with us at the time. So um, it was really kind of a, one of those bittersweet things for my father who's fairly tech savvy and one of the people that's helped to kind of both alpha and beta test all of the apps that we have for him to be in this situation now where he's you know, essentially stuck without that connectivity. So if you look at where he is um, on a development scale, like the way that we compare the rest of the world right now, he's well below many uh, parts of the world that are considered to be developing countries. So for today in 2017 on a reserve in Canada, it's a little bit of a, thank you. It's a little bit, it's just a little bit of a, a little bit of a crazy situation, but is home now and safe and uh, he lost a lot of his tools but he said he did save his computer so 
So there you go, sort of a life and death situation uh, in rural BC that really underlines why it's so important to have broadband access, not just for rural areas, but especially in rural areas. Yeah, it really shows the divide too. Um, you know, the idea that uh, there are areas in the country with some of the fastest internet out there, and then we have other areas that really are underserviced in, uh, in a pretty fundamental way. So I think at this point we should chat a little bit more about what we actually mean when we say things like high speed and broadband. So for this we're going to head to Manitoba and chat with Wayne Kelly. He works at the Rural Development Institute at Brandon University and he's a PhD student at the National University of Ireland in Galway. Yeah, and uh, we talked to Wayne using broadband internet. We actually talked to him um, through a video conferencing tool. So here's the first clip with Wayne. So the big ones right now in rural communities is something called fixed wireless. So that's using microwave towers. Um, and that typically is topping out around 25 megabits per second, maybe 50 megabits, depending on the, the operator and the, the equipment. Um, lots of the plans are still offering around 10 or 12 megabits per second. So when you compare that to the offering of 50 or 100 megabits per second in, in cities, um, there's, there's a significant gap. So yeah, clearly accessing internet in rural regions is a different experience from your more typical urban connection. Uh, fixed wireless is bad enough because you actually need a line of sight uh, in order to be able to um, hook up to the connection. Um, but Wayne says that if you live in remote and especially northern communities, um, you have to rely on satellite technology, which is even more complicated. Been some, some big improvements recently. Um, so they're starting to talk about speeds of 25 megabits per second, which in the middle of nowhere is a fantastic, fantastic option. One of the challenges is that it tends to be very expensive. Um, and then there's some latency issues. So things will drop and you'll get your little buffering signal when you're um, using Netflix or something. But the, the really key thing is, is that for things like um, online education or especially for telehealth, um, that latency issue and, and those drops um, really impact what you can actually deliver online. So there's another example of really important elements of, of life in a rural place being negatively impacted by crappy service. So, uh, so that leads me to my next question. Is Wayne suggesting that, uh, that internet access in rural Canada is pretty much bad across the board? Oh, no, 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 no. That's what I thought. But that's actually not the case at all. Um, this is kind of a funny clip. So we have communities on dial-up, which is, you know, old phone line access still. And then actually the fastest communities in Canada um, are in rural areas. So Olds Alberta has laid claim to having the fastest internet in Canada for quite a while. And there's other communities now that are providing comparable speeds, both in cities and in, in urban areas. But you really do have that range from the fastest to the slowest in Canada. Wow, so uh, I'm surprised. <laughs> yeah, I was too. <laughs> That's pretty interesting stuff. Um, so we know that there can be uh, different levels of possible connectivity, um, but then there's the next issue, which is how many people in Canada can actually access the internet. Um, and you know, when I see numbers in you know in the Global Mail or whatever, it, the numbers always seem really high. Well, that's as we were doing research for this story, the number that kept popping up was 90% of Canadians have access to broadband internet, right? Um, so I asked Wayne about it, and he said, you know, as is the case with statistics, it all depends how you look at those numbers, because the sto there, there is a story behind those numbers. 
in cities it might it's 99% or 100% in terms of have access maybe might not be able to afford it but have the ability to get access in cities um, in rural communities that number can be a lot lower um, and in many communities it's you know you're still like I said you're still working on dial up so it really is um, spotty in terms of across rural and northern Canada um, the other number that's really interesting that I've just seen recently is 99% of youth have access to internet at, at home or school so when you start to include those public access sites in there the number does does go up yeah so there really is impact when we're talking about the school systems and probably library systems and other sort of community spaces where people can go to use the internet Some of that stuff was also touched on when I spoke with one of Wayne's colleagues in Nelson. I'm going to let Megan Rathel tell you a little bit more about herself and her work. My name is Megan Rathel. I'm here with the Rural Development Institute presenting on uh, rural broadband in Manitoba. So she was quick to point out that sometimes internet access is not what it seems. They have high speed and cell service but they don't actually have it like there's towers but the service still is non-existent or inadequate Um, in one community they were talking about how they can't even order a pizza and pay with debit without going to the bottom of their driveway and just complete like there's just like complete blackouts even on the number one highway between Brandon and Winnipeg it's just like complete dead spots so that's pretty annoying if you're trying to order pizza, but it's also dangerous. I think if she went and interviewed some people here in Newfoundland and Labrador, especially people who live, let's say, the southern end of Avalon Peninsula around St. Vincent's, um, where you actually don't have cell signal, never mind Wi-Fi access, um, that can be quite quite dangerous. And uh, lack of internet access is also difficult to work around in terms of economic development. Wayne mentioned a number of ways communities are using the services that they can access specifically to enhance economic development in the region. So some are doing really good things around online businesses. Um, I've heard stories of people actually doing Bitcoin mining in in the middle of rural Manitoba, in the middle of nowhere, um, because the the hydro rates are so great. Um, And as long as they have a decent quality connection, it works perfect. Um, And precision agriculture is another great example Um, So that's using smart technologies and sensors to do really precise, um, really up-to-date and um, precision agriculture, whether that's in the fields, you know, spraying, spraying chemicals by, you know, the meter differently by the meter, or whether that's watching markets sort of as you're harvesting. Um, And that's a really innovative use of of digital technologies. Now that can actually, you can have a, a farmer who's, using precision agriculture and doing a fantastic innovative job and is being held up as like in this example, both in rural and in Canada, their neighbor could be on dial up and maybe is not comfortable using more than email. And actually I've got a kind of a personal experience related to this. Uh, Before I moved to Newfoundland, it's been (laughs) 10 10 or more years now, but I was working in the ag biz industry selling um, sort of high-end software and hardware for pig farmers And in some situations, I would have a producer who wanted to start using, so we were doing RFID tag stuff, but then also web applications that were uh, like analyzing uh, data from people's herds. And there were many situations where they were purchasing the fairly, at that time, high-end equipment and then stumbling with 
connectivity, basic connectivity issues that were really actually keeping them from being able to have the sort of productivity that might have been possible through some of those pretty cool, pretty pretty high-end tools. Obviously, without high-speed, rural, uh, rural areas aren't able to, to participate in some of those kind of um, essential activities, but also the ones that could sort of help them get ahead, too, the sort of on-the-cusp stuff. So what kind of things are being done to try to solve the problem of these shoddy or non-existent connections? That's, it's interesting you mentioned how you were doing this like 10 years ago, right? And uh, even before that, even 20 years ago, um, we kind of started thinking about this in Canada. Given the geography, that's probably not surprising. So there have been many attempts to bring broadband internet, internet access to rural Canada. And as you can imagine, they always run into the same trouble of too few people, too big a geography, right? And maybe we can go back actually to the beginning. I, I feel we were really lucky to be able to talk to Bob Annis um, about this. He was part of a federal push for rural high speed about a decade ago, maybe even 90, so maybe almost 20 years ago. I'll let Bob introduce himself. I'm Bob Annis, and I'm retired, uh, living on uh, Vancouver Island in the Cowichan Valley. But formerly, I was the director of the Rural Development Institute at Brandon University. Um, I was at Brandon University for almost 30 years, um, but the latter part of my career was as a director of the Rural Development Institute. Prior to that, I was the executive director of Westark Group, uh, Applied Research Training Consulting Group um, at the university. Um, and uh, in these roles, um, had a lot of different kinds of projects um, um, throughout rural Manitoba, but the prairies in general. So I, I also feel lucky that we are able to chat with Bob. Not only is he just a really lovely person, <laughs> but he's got this incredible background and experience. And he really was on one of those very first panels that looked seriously at how Canada was going to bring broadband to the masses. Yeah, and he used at that time um, metaphor of railways and highways was very popular. Um, actually, Wayne will talk a little bit about it later on. But that was kind of the thinking at the time. Sort yeah. of a Canada building exercise. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, we asked him to kind of tell us about that time. And this is his recollection of those, um, those early years. I'm not sure how it came about, but and I believe it was Chrétien. Um, it could have been Paul Martin, kind of stated in the house that one of his visions was to connect rural Canada and northern Canada coast to coast to coast. It started to get kind of, the calculators came out, what would this cost? And it was quickly zooming up, one billion, one and a half billion, it's too expensive, it's this and that. And I think the major telecoms kind of were partially behind this of just helping the number go higher and higher and that they, of course, should be those who do it. And the idea, I think, kind of then simmered out, disappeared for a while, um, because when you're talking billions, that's not something that moves easy in terms of a shift of policy. But then a little while later, uh, an initiative came out, the brand initiative, um, with about $100 million um, behind it, saying, let's see what we can do for this amount of money. And I was invited. They had um, um, approximately 25 people as a volunteer committee from across the country um, to come to Ottawa um, to eventually adjudicate proposals. They put the money on the table and the proposals came rolling in 
What kind of projects were people from across the country proposing and did any of them go anywhere? They were proposing all sorts of projects. So I'll let Bob talk about some of those because it's real interesting. They were so, so varied. I mean, it, it could be a current business that is already doing it, but says um, we have line of sight connectivity from one community to another, but we could serve the whole region and extend our network. And we're a cooperative, by the way. Or we're a nonprofit uh, association in Churchill and we're struggling, and, um, but we need to do it big and do it right and get high speed, not, not, not the, the, the reduced width. Um, we could do it as a nonprofit. We had others coming saying, no, we're private sector. Um, we can do this and put in plans and, and processes around that. But at any rate, um, we, we funded, um, I, I thought, close to 100 million in, um, over that time. One of my regrets was, I believe, at, and if there is one I have not accessed or seen it, was to see a really impact evaluation report of, of what came out of that. Because I believe, um, for the dollars on the table, communities that never would have had access now do. Another thing that Bob raised is that more and more of what we are seeing today is that large telecom companies are uh, providing access and it's very centralized. And obviously there is a huge potential for rural areas to miss out um, in that kind of highly centralized landscape. Yeah, without the populations that you see in urban areas, some of those larger companies could definitely charge a premium to offer services in smaller areas, but you also could actually just see them pull out entirely. Um, what kind of things are we seeing to make sure that there's some degree of equality across the country? I, that's a great question. Um, we asked Bob about that and he was actually quite optimistic. Uh, we have done that kind of nation building projects in the past and he thinks that we can do it again. Uh, but he sort of had a warning. He said that we need a plan. I mean, we had a postal system where one stamp went on a, a card and it didn't matter whether you were on a rural route or on 2nd Avenue in Toronto. Um, the postage stamp did it. Um, it. It's amazing how we can have liquor stores that sell beer for the same price right across uh, a province. Um, why not access to internet? I mean, there are ways, there are policy incentives um, that can be put in place to do this. Um, telephone, um, you had to telephone access uh, ruled out. and. Yes, in some instances there wasn't a business case, but there certainly was a national case of this is equitable treatment of Canadians across the country. Um, and we have many institutions in Canada that demonstrate that, CBC being one, again. And that just because you're in the north or in rural doesn't mean you shouldn't have some uh, connection to national news and national culture. And, and so, um, it might not be easy to find the mechanism, um, but surely there are people who can work their way through that. But I think the, um, the goal should be set and a timeline should be set and then it's a question of, okay, cost it out carefully. Um, uh, and, um, but there's still opportunity for smaller um, players in, in the game if they have access to the lines. Um, and, and it's that kind of connectivity that, that I, I think where the real creativity could happen. 
Yeah, so I'm really interested in the idea of, you know, shifting the attention away from just the big boys who, you know, mm-hmm. <laughs> who yeah. are able to crowd the field. Let's talk about some of those those small players in in rural places who might be able to make a difference to the high-speed situation. And you had such a find. Yeah, I talked to a great, great guy. Uh, his name is Greg Lay. He was one of the most interesting people who I spoke to on my trip to Nelson. And he was actually deeply involved in a community internet project that was um, kind of the complete opposite of a coast-to-coast behemoth kind of a provider. He had a long and global career in forestry, um, but he also spent time as the mayor of the small community of Caslow, BC. And during that time, he found himself right in the middle of the very issues that we're talking about here today. The Columbia Basin Trust uh, started an initiative to try and supply or assist communities in becoming connected. The barrier to high speed uh, in rural areas is quite daunting, which is why the major companies, BCTEL and others, are reluctant to invest in rural areas. However, fortunately, they started what was called the Caslow InfoNet Society. Mm-hmm. So maybe I'll just jump in here a little bit with a little bit of information about Columbia Basin Trust because for those of us in the rest of Canada, um, it's not necessarily something we are familiar with. And I hope that in the future we can actually do a whole episode about those kinds of groups. But just as a brief explanation, the Trust was established to support community um, initiatives in the Columbia Basin in British Columbia. And the group was endowed by the provincial government and they decided to take that endowment and invest it in uh, regional hydroelectric projects. Uh, So essentially it was a way for the region to benefit from major projects and take control of their development. Right. And there are a whole lot of interesting economic and community development related stories there too for us to follow up on. But let's return to Greg. I want to hear more about the state of high speed in Caslow um, at the time of the offer from the Columbia Basin Trust. I know that the Caslow Infonet Society had actually been able to achieve some pretty great things. So let's hear more from Greg about that. Sure. And they were able to put in towers and follow the uh, technological changes, the rapid changes in this, and so Columbia Basin Trust came along uh, at the time, and we have regional districts in British Columbia, so the mayors of the community sit on the regional districts, so mm-hmm. I was at a, at a regional district meeting in Columbia Basin, we're pitching the idea, we will help these rural communities. Well, of the 26 communities, only three of them bought in. And there were some issues around the initial attempt to do this in the East Kootenays, and, uh, but it seemed like such a good idea to me. And because Inf- the InfoNet Society was established, uh, and we said, well, look, we've got a building in Caslow, uh, the city hall uh, that we're, we're in at the moment, and why they said, Columbia Basin Trust said, we will bring the, fi- the fiber to that hall, but it's then open to whoever would like to distribute the fiber, at which point I got a little upset and said, well, just a minute, we've got the Caslow InfoNet Society. They're local, they understand people, they've got a market, but they weren't known at the level of which Columbia Basin Trust are really happy. And so did you, who did you think might step in and do it instead? 
we thought somebody out of Kelowna or possibly Calgary would come in and said, okay, we'll put it in. What's that going to cost us and whatnot? Right. And, and so then I got my back up as the mayor a little bit and said, just a minute, this is our community. We have local people. They're, you know, they understand the issue. Uh, they're prepared to expand the service that they now provide through wireless connection into high-speed fiber. And we were, I was able to convince the council that this, that there was a lot of skepticism. And there was a lot of fear of the world we're living in today, the rate of change of the world, and what, what the hell's internet anyway? I mean, you know, I've got it, it works, you know, high speed. What's the difference between low speed and high speed? I don't even know what the difference is. But, but the bottom line was, I said, you know, when you read on how the world is changing, the internet becomes a key part of being able to participate effectively, especially in rural areas. So not only was there the threat of large telecoms coming in, but he actually had to convince his own council and he, the communities in the region to buy into this project. And even really into the concept of high speed as a general sort of premise. Um, but, you know, I'm not that surprised with any new idea, you know, uh, municipalities, you know, <laughs> there's always going to be different, different opinions and different needs. And, and uh, you know, he was actually able to, um, to get everyone kind of on the same page in terms of thinking that it was a good idea. But even after that happened, he told me sort of a funny story about, you know, kind of a lack of <laughs> lack of understanding that. Uh, some of some other municipal services that they were more familiar with might not be you know exactly analogous to some of the challenges of, of putting in high speed so we'll let him tell that story okay here we go one of the barriers we hit was the the CAO of the day said well you know you got to bury that cable three meter uh, three feet and I said well why is that well that's water lines and that. I said well just a minute here this is a piece of fiber cable. You know, what's, what's wrong with 12 inches? Well, nobody knew, but it was, became a barrier, and we, we, we it got confrontational about the fact that we were going to only put this stuff in the, well, how are you going to do it, and where are you going to do it? And we said, well, we're just going to use the streets. Oh, use the streets. Well, let's see, what, is that going to impact us? Are we going to have, so, well, it's only two inches wide. So why I'm telling you this story is that there was these, so this high-level engineering thinking that to put fiber in the ground. Mm -hmm. The other issue that, that, that the CAO raised that was a barrier for, for him was the fact that, okay, what if somebody has a lot and there's fiber going by it and some dum-dum uh, with a backhoe breaks the line? Is, are we going to get sued? Mm -hmm. I said, well, I said, well, I don't know, but I mean, is that really, you know, is that going to stop the whole project till we figure out how to do that? The other barrier was causing, you know, provincial highways. Mm. Oh, highways, you're going to dig a trench two inches wide and 12 inches deep? Well, it's going to have to be more to it. So these institutional barriers became the challenges. However, being stubborn, rural, pioneering types, we actually overcame many of those issues and, and, and we were given leeway to do that. And, and Columbia Basin Trust caved in in terms of allowing internet to kind of 
have access to the high speed uh, place where, where the high, high speed was coming in. Right. It's really impressive what a small community like Hasla was able to do just through sheer stubbornness, political <laughs> will, and, you know, organizing among themselves. They worked really hard, and they should be proud of it. Um, in case you hadn't noticed, Greg tells it like it is. <laughs> and one thing that really gets his goat is that if his small community was able to, you know, work through all that stuff, make it happen, why aren't we seeing more action on, like, a national level related to high speed? You know, no, we built a highway across Canada. That was a collaborative, and all the provinces got, and we, well, first we built the railroad, uh, and then we built the highway. And I don't know why it is that Canadians can't focus on the internet as something that is the right of everybody, mm -hmm. uh, and build and get the federal funding and provincial funding to build it out to open up this global world. Yeah, that's a great question. And we've heard a number of people sort of suggest that idea. You know, we, we started with a railroad, road, then it was the road. Is this the next, uh, I don't, I, I hate the frontier kind of idea. But, you know, this is a connector for the whole country. Yeah, and I, I actually, I asked Wayne, our friend at um, Rural Development Institute in Manitoba, the same thing. And uh, so he, this is how he kind of thinks about it. There's just not the, the business case to get into many of these rural communities, either for cell phone access in terms of increasing the coverage or for internet provision, and especially to maintain the quality of internet provision that we're seeing in cities as well. So to keep pace, um, it's a really tough, tough business case to, to make when you have, you know, one or two people per square kilometer um, and you're having to roll out kilometers and kilometers of infrastructure or put up expensive towers um, to keep them up to date. The technology's there, um, but it's just the, the business case and the funds required to, to keep people connected. And again, the other thing to remember with, with internet, um, unlike, you know, people often equate it to building a road or putting in electricity, and those are great comparisons in terms of the impacts that's gonna make for communities and residents. Um, maybe it's more akin to roads, it's the maintenance and the sort of the constant upgrading. Um, but in case of roads, it might be every 20, 30, 40 years. With internet technologies right now, you know, you're talking every two to three or five years, you're having to update your, your technologies and your infrastructure. That's really costly and, and challenging. Right. So it's all sort of coming back to that uh, population density question. And once again, it makes me feel that probably for some of these communities, the small made in that municipality options are the ones that are more likely going to be successful and, and happen. Yeah, I was actually wondering about that too. And I, so I asked Wayne, we are not the only place in the world that has low density, large geography population. I mean, we are a bit of an extreme on that end, but yeah. not certainly not the only place. Um, so I asked him if he has um, any examples from other places and he did give me one example but there are many others places like sweden's a great one they actually the government installed fiber um a backbone to sort of all the major communities and then they worked with local providers to figure out um, how to deliver it that last mile um, essentially what's happening outside of north america there's a bit of recognition that the private sector delivery of internet services doesn't work for rural and remote communities. 
Um, you're going to get lots of sort of the surrounding sweet spots around big urban centers. Um, if you get larger cities like where I live in Brandon, um, you'll get some good coverage and you get competitive service. The problem is, is that in rural communities, you know, you're lucky to have one provider that's trying to keep pace, let alone having the three or four that's needed for, for a market to provide sort of competitive um, updates. So, so other, other governments um, really, the successful ones like Sweden and other places really is a, that combined um, government and private sector um, build. So if it wasn't for all of the pickled fish, I would have to uh, allow that Sweden is better at everything. <laughs> <laughs> they have good meatballs. <laughs> it's true. I mean, I've only had them at Ikea, so probably not the real deal. Probably not the real deal. Um, but I was wondering, like, when you were speaking with Wayne, he, he's got all this uh, experience. Um, did, he, did he mention any other of the sort of real community-based Caslow-like initiatives? Is that happening elsewhere? Uh, yeah, we, doc- we talked about that. And it's really interesting because it's happening in a place I didn't really expect it in. Uh, and that's the United States. Um, community initiatives seem to be really popular in the States, uh, more so than in Canada. Here is a simple reason why they work. One of the reasons why the community initiatives work so well compared to business initiatives is community initiatives don't need to make a profit. Um, and they, they work more on providing quality of service, just like your local water or garbage collection. They're not looking to, you know, pay off dividends to shareholders. And so, and they also are the ones on the ground who understand both the challenges and the opportunities and need in those communities. And so that's one of the, the real benefits that the community broadband initiatives have is that they're able to, to operate with a much smaller margin and have a much better understanding of, of how to implement some of these things. It all makes sense to me. Yep. So over the last year, we actually have had some positive changes that might actually support um, you know, positive movement in terms of the national broadband strategy. In December, the CRTC declared uh, that broadband access should be considered a basic service. Uh, and right now, um, Canadians are being asked to submit briefs to the House of Commons on broadband connectivity in rural Canada. And internationally, in June last year, the United Nations has declared Internet access a human right, uh, linking the access to the right to freedom of expression. Right. And at the same time, uh, they called on member states to work on bridging the gender digital divide and also to promote digital literacy, which ugh, the more stories that are coming out about Facebook and involvement, not just in American elections, but also around the world. I, I read something recently about, uh, you know, digi- gi- digital literacy in the context of um, Myanmar, where awful things are happening, partially spurred by incorrect and false news mainly being propagated through Facebook. Mm. And it's uh, Wayne and I actually had a really good conversation about digital literacy as part of this interview. Uh, I'm not going to play it now. I think it would be an interesting episode on its own, um, especially if we focus it on rural areas. Um, So maybe we can do that in the future. So we're going to have a whole bunch of links on our website under this episode. There really are so many angles that we could take with this story uh, when we're looking at the idea of internet and high speed and what they can bring to rural places in Canada. Yeah, and we are going to, over in this season alone, we are going to address some of those issues in um, some of the future episodes. So we're done with another episode. Actually, we're almost done. 
Do we have time to share another awesome local treasure as part of our On the Map series? I think we do. I think okay. we have just about enough. This time. is my favorite. Uh, so today we have a guest in the studio who's going to take us to Grand Bank, Newfoundland and Labrador for a very tasty treat. Already. Here we go. Hello, uh, my name's Stephen Miller, and I'm from Marystown, although the uh, place I will be talking about is in Grand Bank. So, uh, and I'm going to give a little bit of uh, Newfoundland and Labrador geography lessons to the folks uh, elsewhere in the country. So you're on the Buren Peninsula. Yes. In, in, on the island portion of Newfoundland. Yes. Yes, um, it's it's the boot. If you were, if you were to look at the map, you would call it the boot. It's the Italy of Newfoundland. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. <laughs> so uh, that's quite an reputation to live up to. <laughs> yeah, we probably fail at that. <laughs> uh, so, what is it that puts your town on the map? Um, well, Grand Bank, we're at Sharon's Nook. It's it's this little hole in the wall. Uh, they're most famous for their cheesecake, but every, everything they have on the menu is it's awesome. It's, it's almost as if you do, if you don't have a grandmother who knows how to cook, you you have one at Sharon's Nook. But it's it's the cheesecake that people go insane for. So how far do people drive for a slice of that cheesecake? Well, I'm uh, from Marystown, and it's about a forty to forty five minute drive away, and and that's really nothing compared to some of the stories I've heard about people <laughs> who are willing to to go to great lengths. And I know several people, including my sister, who has traveled from St. John's to go home for a visit, passed on through Marystown and drove the extra forty five <laughs> minutes, making it a four hour drive, and then back uh, just to get the cheesecake. That's commitment. What's for the cheesecake? Uh, I, I honestly wish that I could could explain it. You you, you really have to eat it. I mean, it, there's no. I mean, all cheesecake, of course, is is delicious. But there's just something about it, and it, it's all homemade stuff. And the menu constantly changes. So it's not just any particular flavor of cheesecake that people are are obsessed with. It's it's just basically any concoction she comes up with it seems to to hit all the right spots and uh yeah i i would suggest it to anyone so can you tell us a little bit about sharon herself um i i actually do not know sharon personally <laughs> um i i only know her through reputation and she has like a small it's like a small business so there's probably only like three employees but i mean you you'd swear that you knew them as soon as you walk in the door because it's, <laughs> it's all sweetheart and darling and, and stuff like that very very informal but also the actual location itself is pretty interesting because they have a, a lot of um, it's almost like a tiny museum they have a lot of like artifacts and like uh, things from days gone by that, that kind of just really attract you. It's really rustic, I guess, would be a way to put it. What kind of flavors does she make? Um, pretty much pretty much everything you can imagine, but uh, sometimes it depends on what berries are in season, like partridge berry, and then there's like obviously cherry and blueberry, and it's it's not even like there's anything like specifically like unique about the cheesecake other than the fact that it's amazing and <laughs> and when, once you try it it's just i'm sure it's like anything that you've talked about like you have to really try it to understand what all the hype is about i love that that was <laughs> such a great story yeah next time you're in uh, newfoundland and labrador and you feel like cheesecake <laughs> yep, you go to Sharon's Nook in Grand Bank. <laughs> so if you want us to put your town on the map, leave us a Facebook message or send us an email and we'll get in touch. And that's it. You've just listened to Rural Roots. Our Rural Roots is a production of the Harris Center at Memorial University of Newfoundland. Yeah, and we do this in partnership with the Canadian Rural Revitalization Foundation and the Rural Policy Learning Commons International Partnership. Rural Roots is funded through a Social Sciences and Humanities Research Council of Canada grant. 
If you'd like to get in touch with us, and we would love it if you did, you can do that on Facebook or through our website at www.ruralrootspodcasts.com. That's all one word, and it's rural, R-O-U-T-E-S, podcasts.com. And if you listened to this episode on your community or campus radio station, let us know what you thought of the show. And feel free to encourage your local station to carry rural roots. Yeah, and you can find us on SoundCloud, iTunes, or any of your favorite podcast apps, assuming you've got decent internet connectivity. <laughs> I'm Brian Fierce. And I'm Rebecca Cahot, and we'll be back in a couple of weeks with another episode. 